Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. Today, we're going to talk about managed service providers, also known as MSPs. Now, if you've worked or you've led an organization that has any sort of IT strategy and implementing strategic initiatives, you know the the value and the opportunity with MSPs. But just to refresh everyone on what are the MSPs, a managed service provider is delivering services, which could be network, application, infrastructure, or security. They do this via ongoing and regular support and active administration on either the customer's premises or in their own data center, if they're hosting or in a third-party data center. And they can deliver these services in conjunction with other providers, uh, or uh, there are pure play MSPs that focus on either one vendor or technology. Bottom line is MSPs are an integral part of overall global IT strategy. And I was looking at some data recently around future projections for the market size for managed service providers. And it is estimated by 2026, that market could be as large as $350 billion. So we're talking about a massive market. Obviously, with all the disruption, what's happening in our global business economy today, I'm really fascinated to talk with our guest today about what impact this has on MSPs, what is the increased value of MSPs in that kind of environment. And we're lucky to have Paul Green here, who is a true MSP marketing expert. Paul's based in the UK, and he works with over 500 MSPs all over the world. He helps MSPs improve their marketing. He helps them generate more leads with his own MSP Marketing Edge program. Now, Paul is a former journalist and radio presenter, and he's been specifically focused in working with MSPs for the past five years. He's also a published author of Updating Servers Doesn't Grow Your Business, and I am thrilled to have Paul join Market Impact Insights today. Paul, how are you doing? Very good, thanks, Dan. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Now, this is amazing. When we're talking about a $350 billion market over the next five years, uh, we're talking about significant, significant impact. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about your career path. This is really interesting. You know, we talked about you being a journalist. You've obviously shifted your focus, but this element of marketing of technology has been a constant thread. And I'm curious, where did that passion for marketing start and how has it evolved? That's a really good question. So I'm not actually a technology guy. I don't really know that much about technology other than talking to MSPs every single day of my life, uh, but I'm not a tech myself. Um, I, as you said, Dan, I actually started as a newspaper reporter. So I came straight out of school. Uh, back, back in the 90s, I got an apprenticeship here in the UK, which meant I sort of learned on the job how to be a newspaper reporter. And that then led on to working in local radio, which was great fun. So I was the breakfast DJ for a while and did all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, but eventually, you know, the the radio globally, uh, radio has consolidated over the last 20 years and it all became about big companies and it was all corporate and it just stopped being fun. And in 2005, I had what's known as an entrepreneurial seizure. And anyone who has ever read a book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth Revisited will know exactly about the entrepreneurial seizure. It's where you suddenly realize you've got to work for yourself and you've got to, you've got to run your own business. And once that idea is there in, in your heart, you can't not act on it. So I quit my job. I started uh, a PR and marketing company, which uh, t- sort of 10 years later we sold. I sold that. It was back in 2016 that I sold it. And that was when I started working with MSPs. But I've always been fascinated with marketing. If I look back at being a newspaper reporter, and certainly when I was running a radio station, you know, half the job of running a radio station is marketing it. Yeah, and we're true. talking like a, a local little radio station. Hadn't really got a lot of money. We'd got a couple of promotional vehicles, Black Thunders we used to call them, and we'd got a couple of promotional staff. And yet we'd got to try and promote this 24-hour-a-day radio station. And so I actually learned. I, I don't have a marketing degree or any formal qualifications, but I literally have been learning on the job for the last 20, 25 years or so. And we did very well with our radio station. And my, my first business did very well once I'd figured out you know, recurring revenue and how to market without having to spend huge amounts of cash. And I think almost my, my entire working life has, has led me up to what I'm doing now with with these managed service providers because they are great people to work with. And they have, as you say, was it 360 billion, 350 billion? It's an enormous market and there's such such huge change coming to this market, which which changes every seven to 10 years anyway. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. And you, you talked about that entrepreneurial seizure moment. Now, a lot of people make that jump. They, they reach a point where they say, I'm ready to take on building and and leading my own business. I, can you talk a little bit more about that actual experience? So it's one thing to think about it. And then the, the other thing is to go and actually do it. What was that transition like when you were working in more of a traditional, I'll call it corporate, it was radio broadcasting in that case, but making that shift to owning your own business, having to build it from scratch. What were some of the, I guess, the ups, the downs, anything that was surprising? Oh, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's a journey. You speak to any business owner. So I'll have been doing this for a time of recording, 16 years I've had my own business. And, and I look back now and realize I'm completely unemployable these days. <laughs> I couldn't work for, for anyone else. And that's because I, I love the control. You know, I'm, I'm choosing to do this with you at this time because it's fun, you know, and, and, and I've got other people to do other things for me. And I think it's the control aspect that attracts most business owners. I, I really loved what I used to do. And it was being on the radio is awesome. And I love the salary. You know, the money was, was, was quite good as well. But once, I guess if I looked at the last five years of my radio career, I, I started to put myself through training courses on things like finance, which isn't really my strong point, and, you know, how to run a business and the legals of, of starting a business. And I, and I think back, you know, right down to my early 20s, I was always cooking up ideas. I, I remember back in, what was it, about 1997, I was thinking, oh, I should, I should write about things happening in the UK and sell that, syndicate it to newspapers in the US. And, I, you know, I, I was always, always, I, I never went ahead with that, but I always had these entrepreneurial ideas. I think anyone who ever has that thought of, I should start a business. And it's not just a one-off thought that that goes away, but it keeps coming back. You've got to act on it. In fact, there are two books I recommend that that you read. Uh, Well, three books, actually. The first is a book by, I think the author's name is Poe Bronson. 
and it's called What Should I Do With My Life? And this is this is the perfect midlife crisis book because you know I'm I'm 47 now and I'm <laughs> perfectly happy with my life and my work and my family and all of that kind of stuff. But go back to when I was 30, you know, just just approaching 30, and I, I wasn't happy with my work. The relationship wasn't great, all of that kind of stuff. And I read this book, and it and it, it helps you to ask yourself the right questions and what should I be doing? And I think that book was fairly instrumental in pushing me to do it. And then I just acted on my unhappiness. And the pandemic's been really good for lots of people in many ways because it's made them realize that commuting for an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon is not fun, you know, and, and paying a huge amount of money to, to, to do that commute is not fun. A lot of people have enjoyed working from home. Other people have realized that working from home sucks. And I think what's happened over the last 18 months or so is lots of people have been pushed into new areas they didn't think they'd ever have a chance to, to, to look at. And it's, it's led to a lot of people making change, which is, which is just wonderful. So I'd go and read that book. And then I think if you are thinking of starting your own business, the book I mentioned earlier, The E-Myth Revisited, mm-hmm. is definitely worth a read. I wish I'd read it before I started the business because it would have given me such a heads up. And the, the sort of more modern version of that, because that's a 1980s classic, the more modern version is called Built to Sell by John Warrillow. And again, you know, it took me 10 years to, to figure out a good business model and to do over a million uh, pounds, which is about $1.2, $1.3 million a year in revenue from a business. And we actually did that in like two to three years, but it took me seven years to figure out the right business model yeah, and, yeah. And, and all of that kind of stuff. And if I'd read Built to Sell, Right. I mean, it didn't exist in 2005, but if I could have read it then, I, I would have shortcut that down and, and just not wasted so much time. So th- those three books I would highly recommend to anyone who's ever thought, maybe I should just do this for myself. Well, what a journey it's been. And you you built your first business, you sold your business, and then you you shifted your focus to the MSPs and helping them from a marketing perspective where did you come up with the idea of focusing on MSPs? What was the inspiration? And what are some of the trends that continue driving their need and the opportunity for MSPs to work with you on improving their marketing? Sure. So the business I sold had evolved into a healthcare marketing agency. So a full service agency doing people's marketing, which is very hard work. And when I sold that, and we did, we did very well out of that sale. And when I sold it, I had a five-year non-compete, so I couldn't work in any of the healthcare sectors. And I, I thought, Do you know what, I'll take a couple of years off. And after six months, I was so bored. I mean, literally so bored. I would drive <laughs> 400 miles to see a friend for lunch and then drive back again. You know, that, that's how desperate I was to find something <laughs> yeah. to do with my time. So I, I thought, I have to start another business. This is, this is crazy. And I look back at all the, the kinds of businesses I'd worked with. And I've always been interested in technology. I don't necessarily understand it. But I used to, when I worked at the radio station, I'd hang out with the, with the engineer in the racks room for hours, you know, asking him, what, what does this piece of equipment do? And why have you done it this way? So I don't have a natural aptitude for it, but I have an interest in it. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to hang out and talk to people all day long, it should be people I quite enjoy working with. I was working with dentists before. I didn't enjoy talking to dentists. <laughs> but I enjoy No one enjoys talking to dentists, not even other dentists. <laughs> but I quite enjoyed talking to technology people. And within a year, I realized um, not only that a, this was an enormous market. B, it was growing and changing really rapidly. And we're talking back in uh, 2016, early 2017, so before any of this kind of pandemic craziness happened. Um, I, I also realized that 95, maybe more, let's say 97% of MSPs are really bad at marketing. And in fact, they don't do any marketing at all. Because your average MSP, 
is someone who has a very deep IT background. They're a technician at heart. That's what they want to do. They want to fix stuff. They want to get involved in stuff. They want to stop problems from happening in the first place. And all they really want to do is do technology. And then they're thrust into being a business owner. And in fact, this is this is one of the curses of being a business owner, is that the more successful your business is, or the, the more you want to free yourself from the prison of your business, the more you have to do the things that you never wanted to do in the first place. No one really starts a business to fill out tax returns and to do paperwork and to deal with unhappy clients and to deal with supplier hassles and laws and all of this kind of stuff. But it's the stuff that we have to do if we want the business to keep running. So most MSPs, they, they hate marketing. They don't want to do marketing at all, but they need new clients. MSPs have a very unique business model. First of all, they keep their clients for insanely long periods of time. I mean, the vast majority of clients I work with have still got client number one. Even if they won client number mm. one 20 years ago, you know, if it's not client number one, it's client number two. They lose clients because only because the clients go bust or they get acquired by a bigger company, which consolidates its IT. So they, they have insane retention. And the second thing is they have enormous amounts of monthly recurring revenue. Now, any business owner who has monthly recurring revenue will tell you it is a complete game changer. But when I had a business which just had to sell every month, you know, every single month on the first of the month, we reset. We had mm -hmm. a cost base yeah. of, I don't know, what, 20000 a month. If we didn't sell 20000 we didn't even cover our costs, let alone me being paid. Because the business owner only gets paid when you make some, some margin, some profit. Whereas when you discover monthly recurring revenue or even annual recurring revenue where money just keeps coming in every year, it's, it's enormous. And we look at the, if you look at the subscription economy we're in today, Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, all of our TV, our cable, our cell phones, uh, uh, even my, you know, Microsoft, all of Microsoft is becoming a subscription. Everything's shifting over to subscription because it just makes for safer businesses. Well, most MSPs have very, very high levels of monthly recurring revenues. So it's very unusual for me to meet an MSP who hasn't covered all of their costs on day one, which makes them quite relaxed. The, the, so so this, this insane retention and this relaxation about where the cash is coming from makes them, I'm not going to use the word lazy, but make, it removes mm -hmm. the incentive yeah. for them to do marketing. They don't really need to do marketing. So getting new clients is a nice to have, not a, not a must have. And what that does is that creates an enormous opportunity for those small number of MSPs that actually do do some marketing. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to talk to you a bit more about this monthly recurring revenue. We'll do that in a minute. But we also talked about the pandemic earlier. And you were talking about the reality of virtual working, and it's great for some, not so great for others. But from your perspective, and you're working with more than 500 MSPs around the world, what have been some of the biggest challenges and learnings that they've taken through this pandemic experience and anything that you've applied back, maybe even into the running of your own business in the context of this global pandemic? Yeah, back in March 2021, most MSPs had a really bad month because after, you know, for years they've been saying to their clients, hey, why don't we get you set up so that you can work anywhere on any device and access any piece of information? And all their clients were, or some of their clients were saying, yeah, yeah, we'll get around to that at some point. And then suddenly in a, in a two, three week period, everyone went into lockdown or some kind of remote working or it was, it was looming over them and everyone wanted that to be set up. And a lot of MSPs really struggled. You know, it wasn't unusual to see support requests going up, you know, up to a thousand percent on, on a normal week. It was, it was just crazy. But when all of that settled down, 
then the MSPs realized that, that certainly in the first few months that they weren't going to lose all of their clients overnight because they were a critical, in fact, they were a more critical function than ever before. They might be losing some users, but they're not necessarily losing clients. They realized that actually this is an opportunity. And I think some of the MSPs have had the most incredible last couple of years. Some, some have struggled. Some have you know, lost, lost clients, particularly in the mm-hmm. States. There's a massive difference between MSP and, MSPs in the States and in other parts of the world. I'm based in the UK. And here, MSPs can't charge anywhere near as much per, per user or per device as mm-hmm. they do as people do in the States. No one understands why. There's this, there's this complete detachment. Uh, but, it, but the downside of that is in the States, you can be an MSP with three clients supporting 400 people, which sounds great until you lose one of those clients. That's right. And losing a client, you lose a third of your business. It's very hard to recover from that. And most MSPs in the UK wouldn't, wouldn't have that. We call them whale clients. They wouldn't have that many whale clients. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of MSPs have done very well in the last two years because they've been able to strengthen their partnership with their clients. Many MSPs don't want clients, they want partners. They, they know they're going to work with them for 15, 20 years. So let's, let's genuinely partner. Let's review where you're at every three or six or 12 months. Let's build technology roadmaps for your business for the next two to three years so that A, you can budget properly and B, we can make sure the technology aids your growth and doesn't get in the way of your growth. So I think for, for the switched on MSPs, this has been a, a great couple of years. What you've got to remember, Dan, is the technology market changes every seven to 10 years anyway. So if you go back 10 years ago, the the business model for what we then called IT support companies was a model called break fix. And we're all familiar Mm -hmm. with that. It's where the computer goes wrong. You pick up the phone, the guy comes out and fixes it and and, or does it remotely if he can. and, and And you paid him for it. And the idea of paying a fee every month for someone to proactively stop things going wrong was, was, was not completely brand new, but it wasn't widespread. Whereas today, that, that's the model. And you have to look forward, you know, if I just put my, my obvious crystal ball to, to use, you can see that security is, is the biggest thing yes. in the MSP market right now. Colonial pipeline, you know, is, is, is put, put ransomware right at the top of the agenda for many businesses. Now, a lot of business owners will look at that and say, well, that would never happen to us. That was a pipeline. It's insane. But actually, the, the same kind of ransomware and cyber, uh, cyber criminals, that the same kind of people who are targeting pipelines are also targeting small businesses. In fact, they're targeting all businesses all the time using automated software. Because the reality is that small businesses are much more likely to, have, uh, to, to not be as secure as, as a big pipeline or a hospital or whatsoever. So there are hacks happening all the time. The, the MSPs are asking themselves all the time, what can we do to be more secure, to make our clients more secure? I'm seeing with my clients now, they're starting to force the businesses they work with to be more secure or sign disclaimers, you know, or, or, or even they will fire them as clients because the, the risks are becoming so high, it's, it's just not worth it. So security is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I think looking forward, you can see that AI, artificial intelligence, yep. is going to play a part. I mean, it already plays uh, a part in, in so many different ways. And, and I think anyone looking forward at, at technology is has got to look at that and say, you know, how can any business use AI to be more efficient? In fact, I saw a great thing today. It was a marketing tool, and it's the first use of... Do you know what deep fakes are, Dan? Have you heard of deep fakes? 
No, no, share a little bit more about that. Okay, so deep, a deep fake is where you can um, you can replace someone's face in a video with someone else's face. If you go onto YouTube and type in Tom Cruise deep fake, you'll find a really cool video made by a company called The Corridor Crew. And they actually, they produce some really good videos. They're, they're um, like a CGI outfit who make more money making videos on YouTube than they do actually doing CGI for big movies. And they, um, they documented how they faked Tom Cruise. So, you know, they're not trying to do it for any bad reason. They're doing it just for entertainment and they're right. showing you how they did it. But basically, they, they just fed lots of footage of Tom Cruise into their special program. 24 hours later, it knows how to recreate Tom Cruise. They get an actor who's kind of got similar hair to him and looks a bit like mm-hmm. him. That yeah. actor does something and then the computer overwrites that guy's face with, with Tom Cruise. And we, we see it in movies. You know, if you watch, if you watch the, oh, I'm about to spoil something. I was about to say if you watch The Mandalorian, but I, I can't say it in case yeah, some, anyone yeah, hasn't seen yeah, season don't, two. Don't, hold not it. Gonna do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. But you see it in movies all the time when they de-age people, like in the Marvel movies, they, mm-hmm. they de-age yes. people. It's called deep fakes. Well, I saw some software today where you can load an hour of footage of your own face and then the computer can deep fake your own face. So this example was a guy who'd sold... 10,000 items on an e-commerce store. And every time someone bought something, they sent what seemed like a personalized video to the person. So you'd get a video saying, it'd be me, it'd be my face and my mouth saying, hi, Dan, I'm so pleased you've bought my product. Thank you very much. And actually, I haven't filmed that. I filmed one video once and then the computer has overwritten that and and made it look as though I'm actually saying your name and, and it can cope with anyone's name. Now, and I mean, that, that's just, that blew me away today. And, and that's available now. I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it, that technology is available now. So you look forward 10 years and you ask yourself from a marketing and a technology and just a business operations point of view, what are we going to be able to use AI to do? And of course, it's the, it's the, it's the MSPs that are going to be there supporting you on that. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And of course, it just opens the door for all the, the good and entertaining applications, but there's always that element of uh, potential malicious application too, which then uh, really brings us back to the whole security question. But something we talked about earlier was monthly recurring revenue. I know you recently spoke about three key things that MSPs should be thinking about in order for increasing that monthly recurring revenue. Can you share a little bit more about that, Paul? Sure. So monthly recurring revenue is is the elixir of life, and um, the 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 way to grow it is well for for MSPs. The three things that we recommend are, and I'll explain these in a second. But the profit matrix, uh, strategic reviews, and adding more services. Now, I think these can be used by pretty much any business that services customers and builds a relationship with customers. Strategic reviews are where you sit down with your customer and you review their business, and they're not supposed to be backwards looking things looking at service level agreements or problems they've had. The whole point of these reviews are that they're forward looking and you're sitting down with your clients and you're talking to them about their favorite subject, which is, of course, themselves and their <laughs> business. And, and the, you know, the, the MSPs that have the closest bonds, that have the best partnerships with their clients, they, they essentially use these strategic reviews to become strategic partners. 
Because you know, you know what it's like being a business owner, Dan. You, you've always got ideas and things you want to do and you know, crazy things. And you're thinking, oh, if we do this, we could grow there and we could put more people there and we can have this office there. And so the, the MSPs encourage their clients to talk about these things and to come up with these crazy ideas because then they can say, well, hey, look, the technology you've got today doesn't, wouldn't support that. But what we can do is we can shift you over to this and this and this. And, and that would allow you to do X, Y, Z. Let's put that in your technology roadmap for next year. And it's, it's how you can help a business to, to plan ahead a little bit more. So the strategic reviews are really important. The profit matrix is a, is, is, a, is a way of organizing information to feed into those strategic reviews. So all MSPs have details hidden away in their computers about which customer is buying which service. And what I always recommend is that they get that out of their software and then they put it on literally on the wall with a giant whiteboard or you know something that they can write on or if, if they have to, a giant monitor, or the, although I think physical is always better. And, and they literally have, have two axes. They have all the clients down one side. They have all the services down the other axis and they, um, they, they literally tick off. If, if they've got 10 services, they tick off which of those clients are buying which service. And the reason to do this and to put it on the wall and make it manual and ugly and there on in display for everyone to see is because that brings the information to life. Everyone in the business, when they're talking to the clients, can just flick their eyes up to the charts and see, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah this, this client doesn't buy service number three, which would eliminate this problem that they've got. And when you come to do your strategic reviews, you can do a quick two-minute review of the board and see what the issues are, or excuse me, see what services people aren't buying before you go out and talk to them. And that's useful information to stick at the back of your head because you can steer the conversation that way. So the profit matrix is essential. Strategic reviews are definitely essential. And then the other thing I recommend to my clients is that they just constantly add more services. Now, the the, the other thing that makes the, the, the MSP business model beautiful is that because they do computers, lots of businesses think they do other things that, that involve computers, like websites. All of my MSP clients have been asked at some point by their clients, hey, you guys do computers, would you do websites? Now, websites are actually a marketing thing. They're not a computer thing. That's like asking the people who print newspapers to, to write the newspapers, you know, the people who yeah. run the printing yeah. press to write the newspapers. It's kind of crazy. But actually, a few of my clients now have clocked onto this, and there are a number of white-label website development services that they can buy and that they can resell onto their clients. And there's, there's literally an, an almost infinite pot of extra things that, that you can sell. In fact, one, one of my clients has more than 100 different monthly recurring revenue services that he sells to his clients. And of course, they don't all buy all of them, but he never, he never ever runs out of something to sell them. And he, he actually doesn't sell them at all. What he does is he asks them very smart questions designed to uncover three things. What do they need? What do they want? And what do they fear? And it's the avoidance of fear that's the biggest yeah. driver for them. You know, people buy stuff because they need it when they need it. They buy stuff because they want it because their heart tells them, oh, I want that thing. But the biggest, the biggest driving factor in a B2B purchase decision is the removal of a fear, the avoidance of fear. So he's got all these monthly recurring revenue services lined up. So if, if he talks to someone and says, what's keeping you awake at night? What do you worry about? What, what do you think your worst member of staff could do to you? He's got a solution to all of those potential problems. That is so true and uh, have read a, a lot of books, but also just through experience in working in marketing organizations closely aligned with sales in that selling process, it is so much more in terms of long-term success about asking the right questions and really listening as opposed to 
doing all the talking and selling, isn't it, Paul? It's it's really that the inquiry and then being able to really understand where that customer's pain points are. Completely. Most of the MSPs I work with, in fact, most of the business owners I've ever worked with have never really had any formal sales training, but they sell very well. They will convert two out of three appointments. And it's because they go in, they ask exploratory questions. They're genuinely interested in the people they're going to work with. They demonstrate a passion for their business, for that person's business. And they ask the questions and they shut up and listen to the answers. <laughs> you know, the, the worst salespeople talk and talk and talk. And actually, it's 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 kind of like um, when when you meet people at a dinner party. So if you go to a dinner, I don't know if, you, if we can ever go to dinner parties again with this pandemic on, but if you go to a dinner party and you meet someone for the first time, if you sit there and talk about yourself for 30 minutes, you can watch them glaze over after a period of yes. time. Whereas actually, if you sit there and you ask them questions about them, and I, I've, I've done this, I've sat next to people in the past that I've met for the first time, and we've spent 30 minutes talking about them. And every, every time they've flipped it back to me, I flipped it back to them and asked another question and explored it and gone deeper in questioning, which, okay, might be a bit easier for me because I, I learned these techniques when I was you know, in the media. But you, you'll go away at the end and, and that person will shake your hand and say, God, that was a fascinating talk. Thank you. And yet they know nothing about you. <laughs> they've, they've been talking about themselves. But that's everyone's favorite thing to do is to talk about themselves. So I think sales meetings, it's, it's yeah, there's some, there's, some, there's some finesse that you do around a sales meeting to, to do proper follow-up and to make sure you have an impact and to make sure they remember you and all of these kind of things. But the very best sales meetings come from, from listening to people. And, and it's never the first answer. That was one of the things I learned on day one in journalism college. The first answer someone gives is not the real answer. You ask someone, how are you? And they say, yeah, I'm fine. And then you, you, you drill into that. You, there are all sorts of depth of questions. And you, you ask them about their follow-ups. And eventually, people start to tell you what they really think. You ask any business owner or any, any manager of a business when you first meet them, hey, how's business? And they'll go, yeah, yeah, it's great. And, and 20 minutes later, they're telling you how they hate their staff and yeah, they hate yeah. their clients and there's no cash and their wife's about to leave them, you know, and it's, it's, that's, that's the real wants, fears and needs. And that, that's where we need to really get to in any kind of selling. Now, you've also encouraged MSPs in quotes to take a break. What's that all about? We don't take enough time off. All of us, and and I think you guys in the states are, are worse for this because you have less employment. Well, we're, hor- we're horrible. I mean, you we, are. We, we, you, yeah. you know, here or here in the UK, you know, if if you're employed, you have, I think it's 28 days guaranteed holiday, and and if I don't give you that or let you take that, I I get I I get fined. You know, I get in big trouble. Um, and and in the states, it's it's <laughs> I know that there's a real culture of let's not take time off. I think b- business owners are the worst. And I did it myself, you know, in 2020 during the pandemic, um, we, I'm sole parent. So there's me, just an 11-year-old, uh, my 11-year-old daughter at home. And we went away for a couple of weeks, but that was it last year. Whereas the, the year before, we'd had kind of six, seven weeks off, which is very easy to, to forget to do in, in the pandemic when everyone's working from right. home. But business owners don't take a break enough. And it's not just about refreshing your body and refreshing your mind. I think the businesses actually do better when you take a break. And there are two main reasons for that. Number one is if you're not there all the time, you have to figure out how the business can thrive without you having to be there. In fact, this is a key message. I mentioned a book earlier, Built to Sell by John Warrillow. This is one of his key messages is that the business thrives without you being there. When I sold my business in 2016, it 
thrived whether I was there or not. I used to go in one day a week, angry Thursdays, I'd call them, because you can systemize a business till it's a system, you know, till, yeah. till you're blue in the face, but people will still make mistakes and do dumb things. But I'd go in one day a week and I did a couple of hours a day from home or whatsoever, but I spent more time in the cinema or the gym or going out for walks or, or whatsoever than I did actually working. And that was one of the things that made that business very attractive to potential acquirers. They didn't need me to run it. The business ran itself. Um, so, so going away more regularly tests how well your business mm-hmm. actually runs yeah. without you. But the second thing is it's a mind space thing. You know, I've, I've just come back from a two-week vacation uh, just in the UK. We went to sort of some of the, the seaside resorts and you know, I checked in on email now and again, but I didn't do a huge amount of work. And guess what? I came back and started again on Monday morning full of ideas. I mean, literally, my mind is just ex- was exploding with ideas and concepts and things to try. And I've set up meetings with my team and I've got my developer ready. You know, we're going to have a massive technological revolution of what we're doing. And it's, it's really exciting. And if I'd, if I'd worked for two weeks, I, I wouldn't have that. You know, you, you, can't, you can't let your mind explore new ideas just having two days off at the weekend. You've got to have at least five, six, seven days, preferably two weeks. So, the, the, I mean, look at Bill Gates. You know, Bill Gates, um, um, uh, uh, was he the 10th richest man? Certainly a very, a very wealthy man. Uh, spends an enormous amount of time reading, thinking, going for walks. Steve Jobs was, was famous for doing exactly the same thing. Elon Musk is perhaps the exception to the rule because he works 80-hour weeks and still yeah. seems to achieve more than <laughs> anyone else. But the most, most of us normal humans, we actually get more done when we're not caught up in the minutiae of our day-to-day business. It's very hard to do, but the most successful people I've ever met, and I know a lot of very successful people both in the technology world and outside – they're all people who have amazing work-life balance. They work very hard when they need to, but they also play very hard as well. And they have enormous amounts of time away from their business. And that seems to be when the, the big jumps happen. Well, that's great advice for all of us. So we've got to achieve that uh, ever-elusive balance, and uh, especially here through the pandemic. So you're obviously someone that is always thinking ahead, Paul. And when you think about the future, what makes you optimistic? That's a really interesting question. Really interesting question. What makes me optimistic? I, I've just read a book, or I'm, I'm nearly finished a book. Um, I'm a big reader, you can probably tell. Uh, in fact, I, I read books and, and listen to other books on Audible all the time, which is, you know, every, every five minutes you're driving or walking somewhere, you can, you can listen right. to a book. Um, the book is called Sapiens, and I can't remember the author's name. It's an enormous book, but it's it's a history of humanity, right from when we were throwing rocks at each other and dinosaurs up to now. And he wrote a sequel called, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but, but it's about the future. What makes me optimistic is is our adaptability. You know, you look at the, the huge climate report, which came out recently, which which just painted a very bleak picture. And you could look at that very negatively and say, we're screwed. Because we, we've certainly done a hell of a lot of damage in a very short space of time. But I, I genuinely believe in the ingenuity of, of, of humans. And I believe in our ability to make incredible connections and, and, and to be led by incredible people. And I, I don't mean politicians. I mean, we mentioned Elon Musk. You know, one of, one of Elon Musk's driving thing is not to be rich. He is the world's richest or the second richest man. But what he's, what's driving him is making a backup of the human species. He wants to put a million people on Mars not because it'll be fun to be on Mars, but because it's it's the first step in backing up the human species. So if if the planet just does happen to go, oh, it's okay, we've got a million people backed up to another planet. And you know, if he's able to achieve that in his lifetime, what an amazing thing. And and we we have a 
you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm only 47, but in the last 20, 30 years, we seem to have moved to a point now where you can have any idea and, and there are a lot of people very open to it. We're very open to new things. Our technology is moving forward at extraordinary pace. You are limited in your technology and your, your marketing um, more or less by your ideas more than you are by the technology. And I think we, although I think these are very dangerous times ahead, and I, I wouldn't want to be my daughter's daughter's daughter, because I think that's going to be really scary for them, for that generation. At the same time, I think we are at a point where we, we, we should be able to fix this. You know, we should be able to um, be, be positive about the future. And, and, and it's going to be tough. And there's going to be a lot of hard work from a lot of people. But you know, if you look back at our, our history and how often we changed the world and how often we did quite amazing things and how the world that we live in today, it, you know, is, is a relatively modern creation. It's only really been around for 150, 200 years or so. It's quite astonishing when you look at that. And certainly in terms of business, I'm optimistic because change creates opportunity and we're going to see more and more and more change. You know, the baby boomers are all retiring right now. That's creating massive, massive change. It's happening all across the world, um, you know. And, and one one of my side projects is acquiring businesses, and I'm I'm buying um, alarm alarm businesses and like security camera businesses, and we're buying them off baby boomers, and they they've done their 20, 30 years, and they've got great businesses, but they're they're just a little bit bored. Sorry, the businesses are a little bit boring, and that they're a little bit flat, and you know there's no energy in them anymore. And and me and my team, we're going to buy these businesses and put them together, and do some do have some fun with them, and put some energy into them, and revolutionise them a little bit. And you know that that's opportunity. We, we're buying perfectly good businesses, but we're making them even better just by putting some some energy and and and, and, and some some spark into them. So I think I think yeah, I and, and I think as long as as humans can be can be free to to think you know, in, in, in big ways and, and take big action. Yeah, that, that gives me huge optimism. And it's wonderful. As I said to you earlier, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sole parent. There's just me and, and my daughter. And it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's actually lovely to sit and watch her grow up. Uh, and she's, she's, she's off with a friend at the moment, so she can't hear me say this. But it's, it's wonderful to watch uh, someone growing up in this world where, you know, she has got a, a phone that's at her side for 10 hours a day. Oh. And, and as much as I'm not a big fan of TikTok, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what, what technology is allowing her to do and how, you know, when I was growing up, you had to go to a library and look that's it up right. in an encyclopedia. And now she just asks Alexa, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have to even look it up on a, on a device. And you've got to say to yourself, what are these guys going to be doing in 30 years time? And, and bearing in mind that they're coming at it, they're, they're understanding technology better than we do in the same way that we understood VCRs better than our parents did. But it's, but, but it's different. It's, it's all shifting and they're going to have enormous challenges, but enormous opportunities as well. Okay, Paul, I have to ask the question, VCR or Betamax? Oh, obviously VCR. Actually, yeah. <laughs> actually, I say I say that my granddad had a Betamax, which he he gave to me in about 1987, and I was the only kid in my class that actually could record <laughs> his own shows in his bedroom, and and I loved turning that Betamax over and putting it in. Do you remember uh, Video 2000? That was that was a format before VHS. Uh, no, uh, but I, there's a good chunk of this audience is probably saying, "What's a Betamax? What are yeah, these guys probably. talking yeah. about?" Right? What's, a, what's right? a VCR? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, definitely, just the rate of innovation and history has shown us that times of greatest challenge typically produces the biggest breakthroughs in terms of new innovation. We're we're seeing that all the time. So there's lots of reasons to be optimistic. And as we start wrapping up our conversation, Paul. Do you have any other final advice for business leaders 
that are seeking sustainable success for their teams and their companies? Oh, that's a big question to, to end on. And I'll try and give a short answer. As you, as you can tell, I like the sound of my own voice. Um, I think, I think um, leadership is, is a very difficult subject. And um, I, I, I equate being a parent with being a leader, which is they do what you do, not what you say. And I think as, as leaders, if, if we want to inspire our teams to think more, do more, care more, we've got to think more, we've got to do more, we've got to care more. I was saying you should go and get quality time off and have a couple of weeks away from your business to think about it. You should also force your team to have time off. You know, if, if I ran a business in the States, I'd give everyone four weeks holiday and made sure they actually took that holiday and oh, vacation. Sorry, um, I would make sure they took that vacation because that that would be, to me, really important for, for their mental well-being and their, right. you know, their, their physical well-being. And I'd, I'd want them to see me taking quality time and then them be able to take quality time as well. And you know what? I'd keep those staff longer for, for exactly that reason. Um, so I, th- I think, yeah, that, that would be my, my final thought is, is, is think, think more, do more, but, but, but remember they are, they really are watching what, what you do. There's, there's, there's a few MSPs I work with where the, the boss just gets frustrated all the time with the staff, not doing what they want, they want them to do, but they're the biggest culprit themselves. They'll skip over the standard operating procedures. They won't use the, the software to log, uh, notes of conversations they've had. They'll turn up late. They'll go early. And then they expect their staff to, to, to not do all of those things. And it's absolutely crazy. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Paul, if people want to find out more about you, find out more about MSPs, where can they go? Sure. I have a, a website. It's called paulgreensmspmarketing.com. There's some information about me on there. Uh, you can get a copy of my book as well. If you are an MSP or you work in the technology world, please do request a copy of that. And it's a free physical book we'll send to you. And we've got years worth of content in the blog there about marketing and about MSPs. And even if you're not an MSP, if you're in the B2B sphere, if you sell business to business, particularly if it's a service that you sell, you'll find loads of useful information on that website. And it's paulgreensmspmarketing.com. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thanks again for joining and sharing your experience as an entrepreneur uh, twice over now and being very successful and inspirational and just sharing your perspective also on this huge opportunity for MSPs around the world. And a reminder to all of you to please give us the gift of feedback, go out and rate and review. If you like the podcast, share your feedback. You can do that easily out on all the streaming platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.